Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Do or do not. There is no try. You think that's air you're breathing? Who are you not to be? We were born to make a manifest. The glory of God that is within us. Welcome back to the Urban Yogi Podcast, episode 76. I am so excited to share our amazing guest today with y'all. This is Dr. Andrew Kaufman, a psychiatrist and medical doctor, and a man who I really see as an example of a divine masculine grounded being. And I see him as a role model, uh, especially over the last year. He's really held his ground, and he's really stood up for the truth I was watching him speak at a roundtable discussion with Dr. Judy Mikovits, who was in the movie Plandemic, and I always was a little bit, um, I took issue with her claiming that she's isolated things when there really is no paper showing that. Um, obviously, I'm not a medical doctor, but Dr. Andrew Kaufman is, so it was really great to see him just kindly, gently, and assertively ask Dr. Mikovits, can you show me a paper? What are you talking about? you know, where where, and when and how was this so-called HIV virus isolated? And she wasn't able to provide any answers. In fact, she kind of just started to freak out on the roundtable discussion while Andrew Kaufman just stayed very calm. And then unfortunately, the host uh, sided with Dr. Mikovits and literally kicked Dr. Kaufman out of the roundtable. He did nothing wrong. He was just asking for scientific uh, validity and backing to what she was claiming. Um, there's really nothing wrong with that. So I really wanted to have him on the show to get into the nitty gritty of these 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 sort of things that are in the consciousness right now of many humans around the planet. It's like, what is a virus? And has it ever been isolated? And, you know, what does isolation mean? And we, we talk a lot about the, uh, the so-called HIV uh, virus, as well as the current uh, coronavirus. And really, at the end of the day, I invite everybody listening to do their own research uh, Dr. Kaufman has tons of information on his website, which I'll include in the show notes below. And you can really come to your own conclusions. But it is a little bit iffy, a little bit fishy when this censorship like is just going crazy with people like Dr. Kaufman. Anybody who questions the dominant uh, narrative is being totally censored, both on the mainstream media as well as uh, social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, etc. I've been really enjoying going over to Telegram because as of now, it's still uncensored, completely uncensored in terms of free speech. And this is such a beautiful thing. Dr. Andrew Kaufman, medical doctor, is a natural healing consultant, inventor, public speaker, forensic psychiatrist, and expert witness. He completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from Medical University of South Carolina, and he has a BS from MIT in molecular biology. He has conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised, and mentored medical students, residents, and fellows in all psychiatric specialties. He has qualified as an expert witness in local, state, and federal courts. Andrew has held leadership positions in academic medicine and professional organizations. He has run a startup company, which developed a medical device he invented and patented. Faculty positions include clinical assistant professor of psychiatry, SUNY Upstate Medical University, 
Vice President, Psychiatry Faculty Practice Corporation, SUNY Upstate Medical University, Medical Director of Faculty Practice, SUNY Upstate Medical University, Assistant Director, Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship, SUNY Upstate Medical University, Consulting Expert Witness, Syracuse University Law School. His education includes Medical University of South Carolina, Doctor of Medicine, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, BS in Biology. His training includes American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology Board Certification in Psychiatry and Forensic Psychiatry 2011, SUNY Upstate Medical University Fellowship in Forensic Psychiatry, Duke University School of Medicine Resident in Psychiatry. He has a long list of publications that have made their way into mainstream medical journals and journals of psychiatry, and you can check that out on his website if you're interested. Without further ado, here is the one and only Dr. Andrew Kaufman. So I'm here with the one and only Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Sweet. Good, good. Um, so I've been studying Germanic New Medicine for a few years now, and I saw you on Andy and Melissa Sell's uh, podcast the other week. And um, it, I feel like the, the approach that you take to medicine really vibes with Germanic New Medicine. And so I just want to thank you for uh, bravely standing up for the truth. Um, I watched your uh, roundtable with uh, Dr. Judy. Mikovits, and it was so um, inspiring to see you speak up for the truth. Um, and as somebody who was basically asking all these questions in my own head that you were broaching to Judy, it felt very empowering. Um, I was sad to see it seemed like your screen went black or they kicked you off or something. I don't know quite what happened, but um, I, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for for asking the questions and and standing up for the truth. Well, that's uh, very appreciated, Will. It's, uh, you know, it's not easy to um, kind of, uh, you know, confront someone and especially, you know, someone like Judy Mikovits, whom I have a lot of respect for. And, you know, obviously she's a very important figure and has, uh, you know, stood up for justice uh, during the pandemic. And uh, I just, you know, felt very strongly that, uh, you know, really what my goal is, is to just um, pursue the truth. And uh, a lot of that has to do with science, because right now we're in a situation where um, we're evolving into a technocracy. And in a technocracy, the so-called, you know, science is what drives policy and even laws. We see, you know, things happening out of scientific experts that are essentially respected as if they were law passed by a legislative body. And so if we don't have integrity, like 100% honesty and truth seeking in the science that's behind this, um, it's going to be incredibly destructive because it could be manipulated so easily. I mean, we know, you know, one of the um, most uh, favorite books of Bill Gates is How to Lie with Statistics. And, uh, you know, it, the thing is, it's, I'll tell you from being, you know, an academic physician and being a, a peer reviewer for a journal and also submitting publications, uh, you know, sorry, manuscripts for publication involving statistics, hardly anybody understands statistics at all. 
<laughs> right. As even virologists, like I applied a simple statistical test to one of their studies to say is group their control group different from their experimental group and actually and they should have done this. So you're supposed to you should do this anytime. And it turns out that there was no difference. Really? Yeah. Um, between the groups. And this was they said that this proved Koch's postulates. So, you know, but then statistically it was meaningless. It was <laughs> it could have it just occurred by chance. And so you can easily use them in many, many different ways because just even people who are supposedly researchers or doctors or scientists often haven't had the proper training so they can even understand it. Right. Right. So the, there's so much misper misperception that can occur and really obfuscate the issue. Thank you for saying that. And um, it seems to be that the only two things in medicine that don't have to be subject to a true, full, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study are HIV AIDS drugs and vaccinations. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't find any true placebo study in any of those types of uh, pharmaceutical. Uh, you should also uh, add chemotherapy. Oh, right. To that because they also don't ever do placebo. But, you know, even the so-called, you know, RCT randomized control placebo controlled trial, um, and it would be, you know, double blind, of course, is the is the the best version of that. That has a lot of limitations, right? That's not we're not starting at a point of perfection here. That's just the best available type of study, but there's so many ways that that could be manipulated and fudged. And, you know, one major, major way is what is the outcome you're looking at? Because like for antidepressants, for example, they, you know, they got these drugs approved by doing randomized controlled studies, but the outcome was to basically the look uh, or score a little bit lower on some test that has nothing to do with the real world. Like they never look at, oh, does someone, you know, um, take less sick days at work? Does, you know, are someone more likely to, to stay married, uh, you know, for the next five years? Uh, or, you know, do they, um, uh, have less likelihood of being arrested or do they make more money in their job or get, you know, a higher level of education. Like those would be really important things to look at um, that would make a difference in someone's life. And then you could say, oh, wow, that's, that's a real benefit. But, you know, if you drop uh, six points on a depression rating scale in six weeks, what does that mean? <laughs> You know, is that really, uh, you know, make any change uh, in your life? Mm -hmm. probably, probably not. My father is a psychiatrist as well. And um, it, it was always really sort of eye opening. I remember Pfizer um, actually paying for him to go to a fishing retreat, like a really nice five star resort fishing retreat. He was able to take two, two of his kids. So I got to go and I kind of snuck into the ballroom to watch their their meetings and um, it was very uh, sort of eye-opening to see this drug rep at the front and all of these psychiatrists, and they were spending so much time focusing on advertising for, for their uh, next antidepressant. And even at six years old, I was like, something feels very energetically kind of creepy about this situation. I remember they had like easels of different women 
but like which woman's face is going to sell like which one do you think we should put in the journal and I was like oh was like can we just go fishing <laughs> it was just really weird um well, you know, I, I have some personal experience with that kind of thing as well, because when I started out my career being young and naive, and I wasn't really awake to the truth about many subjects back then, um, but I was, you know, taken in a little bit by the, the drug reps and that whole culture, because, you know, you had these like young, fun, or like it was like either a really super fun guy, you know, who would like, you know, always know everything about everybody and want to accommodate everyone's preferences yeah. or, you know, a really attractive woman who would be, you know, flirtatious, but always beyond reach. And they would take you out to fancy restaurants mm -hmm. and uh, or bars and like, you know, buy you a bunch of drinks or mm -hmm. or they or donuts. Like, I remember donuts. <laughs> They had, yeah, well, I mean, they were there always there. Like, so every, you know, lunchtime lecture, they had brought food or snacks or something. And then they would invite you to all these things. And sometimes it was, you know, even, you know, go out dancing and, you know, and to a bar. It was like sporting events. And, you know, I wasn't, of course, like amenable to the, the trips like that. But I know that they did that with a lot of people, you know, they invited them to get like continuing education credits down in the Caribbean and it was all expenses paid. And, you know, then it would, they have the required to have those things to keep up their license and, and uh, board certification anyway. Uh, so, you know, having it all paid for and making it into a vacation, it was like, you know, who could pass that up and you create a situation where then you owe something to them like social reciprocity. So you of course prescribe their drug. Mm -hmm. And uh, they monitor it, by the way, also. So if you don't, you hear about it. <laughs> but yeah, but for me, like, so I was pretty naive and I was a physician assistant before um, I went to medical school, but I was still on faculty at, at the medical school at that time, actually teaching a lot of doctors. And um, so they asked me if I would do a, like a dinner talk for, you know, drug rep sponsored um, on anemia of chronic disease. Are you frozen? Sorry, Dr. Kaufman, you're yeah. after anemia of chronic disease, it went frozen. Oh, okay. All right. Is it, it's better now though? Yeah. So we okay. heard anemia of chronic disease. <clears throat> yeah. So, so they asked me if I would give like one of these, uh, you know, drug rep, uh, drug company sponsored dinner talks, like at a restaurant where they rent out a little room mm -hmm. on uh, anemia of chronic disease. And, you know, I knew that the, the company made this drug uh, Procrit that was, um, you know, a, a growth hormone for uh, blood cells that could be used in this disease, right? So I thought they wanted me to give like an informative educational talk. And so I started working on one, but, um, what they really wanted was they gave me their slides and said, oh, you might want to use this. And they, they weren't very forceful. I think they were trying to feel me out if I was, you know, willing to do what they wanted. But I looked at the slides and I was like, these, these just look like ads. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I used one of them and then I did the rest of my own. And, um, you know, I gave a fair assessment and you know, actually, I emphasize that you want to make sure you get the correct diagnosis before you just willy nilly treat. 
<laughs> they probably wanted me to say, you know, give it to as many people as possible. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so then I was never um, invited to do that again. Right. Uh, that, that which was a good thing. Yeah. Um, because, you know, after, soon after that is when I realized what the whole thing was really about. And then I, you know, cut it off completely for myself. And then, you know, soon after, actually, many hospitals did put limits um, on that stuff, uh, you know, more and more. But it's it's still pervasive. Right. And if if my father's ever listening to this, I love you, dad. And I'm never meaning to criticize you. And and the positive is um, the Canadian Medical Association is now giving uh, people like my father credits for attending meditation workshops and learning <laughs> learning yoga and learning meditation and holistic wellness. So this is a, a cool advance in, in Canadian psychiatry. So, the, so to focus on the positive, that's a great thing. And also he's deviated away from prescribing and now he's more about being a really good listener and holding space, which I think is can be very healing. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you know, listen, the first time I ever saw someone with a psychiatric condition completely cured was just based on changing their diet. <laughs> yes. I asked my dad about that. I said, dad, how much training in human nutrition did you get in medical school? And he went, good point. We didn't really get any. And I went, wow, like, cause I'm learning a lot about nutrition these days and how the gut is so related to the brain and mood. And I'm learning about things like glyphosate. And now that I've been taking Shilajit, which I want to ask about your product later, yeah, yeah, um, it literally is like masculinizing me. I can literally feel like my vitality going up and I just feel so much more cognitively peaceful and joyful more and more of the time. Well, Will, you know, I think I, I like to think about things in sort of the most uh, simplified and natural uh, way possible, because really when we're talking about, you know, biology and our bodies and health, I think it really is much simpler than it seems in many right. ways. Not, not that I have all the answers, of course, and there may be things, you know, some things that we can never really explain for sure. Um, but, you know, this goes back to just common sense that we've heard before. Whatever you eat is what your body's made of, right? The only substances your body can be made of is what you put in it. And, you know, either purposely or uh, not on purpose that you can't control. But nonetheless, there's nothing else that it could possibly be made of. And your body remakes itself over and over. All your tissues renew. And if they, they use what materials are available. Right. So you put poisons in your body, then your body is going to be partially made of poison. That's such a good explanation. I always say it's hard to find a human these days that's not genetically modified and filled with poison. <laughs> well, hopefully, I think, you know, only the people uh, taking the current uh, COVID vaccine treatments are genetically modified themselves, hopefully. <laughs> Right. Hopefully one would hope. But, but certainly, you know, but they, um, most people, you know, unless they are very, very careful, they're eating other organisms that are genetically modified, uh, you know, routinely. And, and they're actually, these things are snuck into all kinds of ingredients by using, calling them different names or taking parts of them and calling it something, you know, like who would have known that maltodextrin is actually, you know, from GMO corn. And so, so the maltodextrin in the, on the potato chips, for example, 
Right. You know, unless it's, unless it's uh, organic maltodextrin, then it would be, you know, have to be from organic corn, but otherwise it's definitely a GMO product. And, you know, you see that in many, many things actually right. common ingredient. Yes. And, and I've noticed in my journey, like sort of my health journey, it's like, wow, it really does make a difference what we're putting into our bodies on a regular basis. It really, really does. And for people who are used to just eating McDonald's and drinking every day and, this and that and filling themselves with wine that's been laden with glyphosate and atrazine, you don't know until you try. So I just say anybody listening, don't knock it till you try it. You don't have to be anal about your diet, but just be aware that the mainstream food supply is largely contaminated with these chemicals. I watched this really cool documentary for free on YouTube the other night called the disappearing male. I don't know if you've seen it, but it talks no, about I, uh, I've definitely, I can tell you what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. So my secret sort of sauce, because I've been leading um, sort of men's tantric, uh, you know, uh, events and programs is combining semen retention with sort of the Montauk Chia, sexual Kung Fu, sexual transmutation technologies and superfood nutrition and detoxification. Um, so maybe let me ask you right now, tell me about the Shilajit that I was very um, inspired and curious because you're getting it from the Rockies. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. That's really cool because I've only ever known it to come from the Himalayas. So yeah, how about you tell me more about that because that's really juicy and cool. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you know, there's there's definitely an issue with trace minerals because there are many and, you know, it's debatable exactly which ones and exactly how many, to be honest with you, because you'll find uh, different evidence for different things. But there are definitely a lot of trace minerals that are actually different metals that we need in small quantities to really be, you know, fully healthy. And they work with usually with different enzymes. And, you know, like a common example that people would know of would be just iron, that we know iron is necessary for hemoglobin, which is a protein that binds oxygen in our blood. And so, you know, there's all different other metals, like things that are exotic, even like molybdenum. Um, you know, uh, of course, we would know about other more common things like copper um, and zinc, but these things that you need in just small quantities to do like a specific job in your body. And, and originally, you know, all these things were just available in the soil and in the plants and vegetables and fruits that grew in that soil. And if local people would forage and eat those things and then their droppings would stay in that soil, the minerals would recycle. But when we started having agriculture, where we would grow things in one piece of land and then take the food um, to a different location, well then after just two growing seasons, you end up removing all the minerals from that land. And if you keep growing food there, it's devoid of the minerals. And the food can still grow, it just won't have those minerals in it, so it won't function optimally. And that's why like over time they had to use like the nitrogen-based fertilizers and, and such to make the, the, the vegetables or the, the plants grow adequately to kind of overcome the stress of not having all of the, uh, you know, normal constituents. You know, it'd be, it would be kind of like, you know, not worrying about good nutrition, but just like, you know, shooting yourself up with steroids and eating, drinking protein shakes all the time to be a bodybuilder. Right. right. Like you, you get big and pumped, but you wouldn't be healthy. You know, you might at any mo moment drop dead <laughs> or get liver <laughs> cancer, you know, but, but you might also like qualify for the Olympics. 
Right. Right. And so that's kind of like modern agriculture instead of, you know, like the way where you, um, you know, you have uh, balanced nutrition and, you know, you like, uh, you know, pull a rock up the hill, you know, uh, with a rope and, and you get super strong, um, but you're like really balanced and healthy. Thank you for explaining that way, because I really feel like modern humans, especially modern men, I see us as like caged beasts. And we've literally been castrated through these chemicals like atrazine. I don't know if you're familiar with atrazine, but it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, another one of those uh, endocrine disrupting for those listening uh, chemicals that they're literally spraying on like more than 60% of the corn crops in the US. It's very pervasive. Um, a, a scientist named uh, Tyrell, I can't remember his last name, but he was hired in Berkeley. Yes, yes, Tyrone somebody. Oh, you've frozen. Uh, Dr. Uh, Tuffman, sorry, we, we cut out again. We missed about the last minute. Okay. But, um, but we, we were saying Ty, Tyrone and, and then we were going to go into, yeah, sort of the disruption of the, the hormones. Yeah. So I was just saying that, you know, I'm familiar with the work on atrazine, uh, you know, causing uh, hermaphrodites and other, uh, you know, problems with uh, gender expression in, in amphibians. And you know, interestingly, the, the Environmental Protection Agency refused, based on that evidence, to even regulate its use at all. <laughs> so uh, that's actually, really sad. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, we can't we can't rely on anyone other than ourselves um, about these things. And, you know, that's why, you know, it's important to eat food that's not grown with any chemicals and better, you know, the best thing is yes. to grow it yourself. But uh, certainly you don't want to support that. But there are many, many other things that are causing endocrine problems. I mean, one thing that, you know, there's a big emphasis on uh, a vegan lifestyle and that, you know, it's not ethical to eat animals. And of course, there, there are many ways and merits to that debate. But what they market is these meat substitutes. And a lot of them are made from mm -hmm. soy. Uh, or other, uh, you know, products. And, you know, soy is really a kind of a poison food. It was never really eaten in Asian cultures, except in a fermented form with something like natto, which is super healthy, um, or soy sauce, right, which are, are fermented, and they would eat those things in small quantities. But something like tofu, for example, you know, it's generally made with organic solvents like from a chemical factory like hexane that which are carcinogenic and it there are many phytoestrogens and which are endocrine disrupting chemicals and many other uh, toxic elements uh, related to eating soy so you know this is another you know it's it's a multi um you know factorial or uh attack really against um you know, masculinity. And I'm, we're just talking about the sort of chemical aspects, but there's also a cultural um, assault, right, on traditional gender roles um, and the strength of the, of the, you know, sacred masculine. Uh, because, you know, the sacred feminine had been conquered centuries ago, you know, through the uh, burning of witches and, and such over the years. And even in the Eastern Buddhist tradition, when it was said that women were not uh, able to be enlightened and were, you know, excluded from that uh, type of uh, study. 
Um, so now we have, you know, the assault on the sacred masculine and uh, the really the goal is transhumanism where there is no man and there is no woman. Uh, there is simply a, you know, uh, an obedient worker. Uh, of, of, amen uh, to that. of <laughs> Not amen to that, but amen to what you're saying yeah. is that that's what I've been. That's what I've been saying too on my on my social media. And just to quickly circle back to the atrazine, there was a study I was reading on PubMed where it was on human fetuses, male fetuses, and just a little bit of atrazine in the mother's system during pregnancy. They were able to show that the anogenital distance between the anus and where the scrotal sac forms is, is shorter. And in some cases, the penis doesn't fully form. And in some cases, the labial folds don't fully form into the scrotal sac because we all start as a female and then the ovaries descend down into, the, they're supposed to be turned into the testicles and they don't always descend because of atrazine. They've been able to show that in humans as well. So for those listening, there are some human studies. Wow, that's amazing. I'd love for you to send me uh, that because the last time I looked at that, it was probably before that study was done. Okay, um, yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So I totally agree with you. It's, it's a multi-level, uh, multi-pronged uh, approach to uh, pinching us off from our divine masculine uh, essence. Um, and, you know, also just to like, if in the current context, what would really stop the government tyranny would be a bunch of strong male presence Right. That would say we're not going to take this. Try, you know, try to make us right. That, that's exactly what they're afraid of. Um, and that's what we need. So it's really important to, to regain that, you know, for each of us as an individual man. Amen to that. And, and I really see you as standing in the center of the storm, embodying your divine masculine. Even when Judy was freaking out at you, you were so calm. I was talking with my German new medicine friends about it and we're, we're all like, wow, he just stayed so calm. And like, she was just freaking out and you're just like, Judy, <laughs> show me the paper. Like you're just very calm and assertive. Um, so I really appreciate you for standing in your divine masculine because that gives me, it's like, you can't be what you can't see. So when I see you do that, it gives me more impetus and, and gumption and, and willpower to do it as well. And it really is a form of strength training to, to do this and, I spend a lot of time in nature, like barefoot walking and hanging out with other strong men and doing cold plunging and eating really good food because those things really help me get rooted. What are some of the technologies and good daily habits that you use to stay in your divine masculine? Well, you know, I mean, just kind of, you know, being the uh, strength of my family, uh, you know, being the breadwinner, um, like taking responsibility for things, you know, like uh, the safety, the well-being of the family, um, you know, all those things really reinforce it uh, for me. Like, I don't need to beat on my chest and, uh, you know, yell at people. Um, but, you know, like I also, there are certain things like, you know, when I go out into the woods, um, you know, and for target practice and work on my firearm skills, for example, you know, that definitely gives me a sense of it, but also the same thing when I'm tending my garden and I see that I'm producing food right through like my, uh, hands going into the, into the work, you know, earth kind of my own muscles moving that and, uh, planting the seed and bringing the water and making it happen. Um, you know, all those things have the same masculine element 
um, you know, even if they seem like they could be women's work. I mean, you know, take something just like cooking, for example, you know, we think about that domestically, right, as um, being the woman's work. And that's not really the case. It's the reason is, is for pragmatic reasons. If the woman is is home taking care of the kids, and I know not all families are like this, but talking traditionally, then, you know, the man's not available to be in the kitchen, right? He's away or in the fields or, you know, at the mine or whatever. So he can't do it. But if you look at, you know, like who are the, the chefs around the world, you know, they're predominantly men. Yes. Right. <laughs> so it's like, but you have to see, you know, so, so what's the context of it? And, you know, like, because, you know, you're basically the captain of the kitchen. Yes. Right. Which is was definitely that male uh, role. So, you know, you can can uh, experience this and, um, you know, sort of draw on this, the natural element of this, almost regardless of the particular activity. It's more of it's your attitude. It's the context. It's your, you know, your dominion. Yes. For most of my life, I don't know if it was because of the atrazine and living in a state of fear, because we know that fear causes estrogen levels to rise in males and testosterone to go down. I literally couldn't feel my cocker balls. Also, I was sexually abused by a doctor when I was four, the premature forced retraction of the foreskin, a very sort of aggressive thing. It's like taking the fingernail and ripping it off the finger. A lot of doctors still don't realize and caretakers that the foreskin is actually adhered to the glands with a membrane. It doesn't dissolve until that boy's anywhere from age six to 20 years old. So that right. was, that was a, a, an assault to the genitals right there. So I literally couldn't feel my sexual center unless I was fully erect. And so the practice yeah. of just slowing down and doing some long, deep breathing and breath work. And I also think leaching things like glyphosate out of my system, which we know also when you get it out, your testosterone levels go back up. I can actually feel my whole physical apparatus, including the, the cock and balls and the muscles, as you were saying. So yeah, you, you bring your mass, your divine masculine self to whatever you do, and you really embody your full physical apparatus. It feels so good to be a human male, you know? That's right. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that point about the uh, circumcision ritual, because really that is a, a trauma ritual. And it definitely sends that message, you know, that you are not to be dominant. And it does take away, you know, not only um, sense, you know, sensation, right, feeling that you would have there, but function, because that is the, you know, what maintains the skin of the glands, provides the lubrication and the covering. And when you're circumcised, it dries out and then it creates friction during the sexual act that, you know, can actually be, you know, cause problems. It's not the same experience that we're supposed to have. And, you know, there's many, many things to look at with that issue. And, you know, it's unfortunate that many of us, uh, you know, we didn't have a say or, or we decided to do this with our children before we thought about it. But every, you know, man who's hearing this now should definitely you know, make it your business to really research this issue and think about it. Um, and pass this information along so that we can, you know, stop this, uh, this trauma from, from just occurring almost like on autopilot. Uh, but this is one of the, you know, the many aspects. And I think, you know, you do have to also consider this physical aspect that we're talking about. You know. So, and, you know, as part of the process of reclaiming your um, masculine 
um, energy, I think addressing this, these physical issues, as you point out, is good. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, reducing exposure to all these synthetic chemicals and processed foods. So if you have a vegan diet, then stick to just organic fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes in their whole form, not, not in any processed form, you know, things that resemble the way they are in nature. And uh, that will, you know, keep it clean for you and make sure also with your water that you have, you know, clean water, distilled reverse osmosis, or uh, if you're rare and lucky enough to get a pristine natural source of water. Um, and then you want to, uh, you know, do some cleansing as well. And there are a variety of ways to do this. Um, you know, one masculine way to do this may be like through saunas, um, you know, infrared saunas, uh, but there's, there's many ways to explore. Um, and then, you know, consider giving yourself the raw materials to um, get your adrenal health and your sexual hormones optimized. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, the best way to do this is to eat high cholesterol foods. Um, all those hormones are made from cholesterol. And um, so things like liver, shrimp, um, lobster. So unfortunately, all cholesterol is only made by animals. So you can't get cholesterol from, from plant-based foods, uh, your body can make it and it makes it from saturated fat. So you want to overload on saturated fats if you're uh, avoiding any animal foods. So that would be, you know, things like there, there aren't a lot of good sources in plant food, but there are some. So like coconut oil would be one good one. And there are some, I believe, nut, nuts that are high in that. I think possibly walnuts but don't quote me a hundred percent. You'd have to do some additional research. And also with shrimp, people just have to be careful that it's not farmed shrimp that's been injected with antibiotics. Um, Absolutely. I would get, you know, uh, I find the uh, Gulf uh, of Mexico wild shrimp to be the, uh, of the, the cleanest and most reliable. Yeah. But yeah, definitely not any farmed and not any ones that use slave labor from Thailand or, you know, uh, with all with all seafood, because it's so internationally based, you have to, you know, do a bit of research to find out what uh, what you're getting and uh, what is safe. But uh, that, you can rely on Gulf Gulf shrimp and uh, Alaskan salmon are two things you can rely on. Nice. I just watched um, Sea Spiracy a couple nights ago. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was. I felt it was quite well done. There was quite a push to be plant based, and when they were showing the plant based alternatives, I think, well, what what's actually in those because <laughs> I saw the Beyond Meat Burger and I was not impressed. I was like, all those things like plastics in there, literally. But um, I just wanted to quickly cycle back to the, the circumcision that um, Dr. Northrup was talking about how the, the foreskin actually, it serves not only the purpose to protect the glands to keep it sensitive, but also during sex, when the penis goes into the vagina, the foreskin is obviously rolled back and it actually keeps the vaginal fluids in the vagina so that you have a good juicy, you know, uh, lubricated sexual experience. Um, so that's like another function of the foreskin that I learned about recently. Well, that, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, looking at, at uh, the mechanics of it uh, totally makes sense to me. Right. And then I mean, the overall, think about it, like every single part of our body, is there for a reason. You know, there's nothing that's accidental. 
and there, and there's nothing that we should just snip off or cut out, you know. Be, and because of that, it just doesn't make sense. Totally. And you know, even in the in the sense of illness, there there's always another way to heal. Um, you know, there's a, it's it's always the you know the last resort of desperation to cut anything off. Like it would basically have to be dead already to cut it off. Um, you know, like if, for example, you know, somebody's finger was just smashed, you know, beyond repair into smithereens, there's nothing you could do. It's already dead, right? So you just remove it. But, um, you know, the things that are intact, uh, you know, in general, that's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's not for the purpose of health or, or healing. I've been teaching naked men's yoga for the last 10 years. And because it's such a sensitive issue, I think the mainstream don't realize how many botched circumcisions happen. I have seen literally men's penises cut off. So there's only a shaft. I've seen skin bridges where you could literally stick your finger between bands of skin that connect the head of the penis somewhere along the shaft. It's, it's very like, botched like so many botched circumcisions over the years wow. yeah it's it's um i think it's an extremely high rate i mean i would say every circumcision is botched because it's not meant to happen um especially without the consent like to do it on a small infant it's it's like totally a wounding i always say it's a wounding in the root to cut us off from our power and then they wound us in the crown chakra the pineal gland through things like fluoridation and all these chemicals that cut us off from our higher self so we're just well, what they, you know we've seen uh, another recent attack on that with the temperature guns oh yes tell me about that yeah well i mean you see that they're aiming uh, essentially an infrared laser perhaps right at your pineal gland <laughs> your third eye chakra yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and that happening over and over again, we don't know what that's doing to that very sensitive gland. I think, I think we have an idea and, you know, I would encourage people, first of all, you know, no one has a right to do a physical examination on you. If, you know, if they're not your healthcare provider, <laughs> right. And so let alone someone, you know, who's a lay professional, they're practicing medicine without a license. Mm -hmm. you know, by doing that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, so I, I've never submitted to anything like that. And I have had to walk away from a job because of that on one occasion, uh, you know, very lucrative, a job as an expert witness. Uh, but, you know, if, if you feel that you can't get along without doing this, don't let them aim it at your head. They can do it at your wrist. Yeah. And, um, you know, ask them to prove to you that they have a reason not to do that um, otherwise. And also ask them if they will uh, be willing to sign to accept 100% liability if you should have any health problems as a result of what they're doing. That's really good. Thank you for bringing that up. I was just in the Apple store the other day and she said, oh, no, you got to have a temperature check. And I, there was a lady with a gun and I looked at her and said, there's no way you're going to shoot that at my brain. But I mean, if, if, this, if you have to do it, like, <laughs> here's my wrist. Um, but yeah, I, I like all that verbiage you just said, because it's true. It's a medical procedure that, um, yeah, that you need to, that they need to sign off on if there's any sort of uh, negative impacts of it. Yeah. Um, 
I really like your approach to life and wellness. And just, it seems like you're all about the basics. It's just like, take care. Let's take care of the basics. Let's get the shit out of ourselves, like the chemicals. Uh, let's eat nutrient dense foods uh, that are not genetically modified and sprayed with tons of chemicals. Uh, let's spend time in nature, gardening, you know, being human. I like your, your human approach to life versus this transhumanist uh, approach to life that uh, the certain cult that's running the planet seems to want to promulgate on everybody. Um, I just want to ask you about, I have a few sort of specific questions that I was uh, really wanting to ask you. We know that um, viruses are not the cause of disease. What in your view does a positive HIV antibody test mean? Uh, Zach Bush uh, Dr. Zach Bush said only 0.1% of people with so-called HIV, we know it's never been isolated, uh, in their systems ever go on to exhibit any symptomology. Um, and I keep meeting more and more people, um, at least 30 men now who tested positive for HIV in the 80s, never took any AIDS drugs and are healthier than a horse. And it's been over 20 to 30 years. Yeah, well, you know, that's because the HIV tests is the same thing as the any of the COVID tests. They're completely meaningless. So it could be anything that makes you positive virtually. And, you know, even just documented things that have made people positive over and over again with an HIV test, there's over 60 conditions. And it includes things like pregnancy or getting a hepatitis B vaccine. Um, and many other drug use I've heard, uh, use of cocaine and, and, and things of that nature can trigger a, a so-called positive test. Like I said, it's over 60 different things that, that are very, you know, so, you know, there are many of these things are uh, common uh, conditions like pregnancy or getting a hepatitis B vaccine. So, you know, really the, it's just a completely meaningless test. It's just a way to get you to buy in, to do other things, to make you a good customer, like to be on lifelong, you know, antiviral medications, uh, for example, or to go along with, uh, you know, a vaccine or some other thing. Uh, that, that's the real purpose. It doesn't tell you anything about your health. Right. And it, it's, it's always, uh, strange and curious to me that this Anthony Fauci was behind the whole AIDS hoax uh, beginning in the 80s. And now he's one of the figures behind this whole COVID hoax. Um, and he's 80 years old and like he's killed so many people. I'm just like, dude, can't you just like go to a nursing home and die? Like what's what's in somebody's psyche that would make them want to continue to just fuck people's lives up? Well, you know, know. Um, uh, first of all, I don't want to, you know, uh, give too much credit to Fauci because it might seem like he's the one calling the shots, but he's really just being told what to do. And, you know, he's got a, he's, he's made a contract to do that for the rest of his life or else be, you know, ruined in some way. And, you know, he's powerful and wealthy as a result, and he's a psychopath. Um, so he doesn't feel guilty about this at all. You know, one of the things about being a psychopath and it, psychopaths are not common. I don't want, you know, they're, they're relatively rare, but uh, you know, they're, they're very evil and they basically, you know, don't feel remorse or guilt about hurting other people. They only see things from their own perspective. Um, and usually the only ones that they would protect are like their blood relatives. Um, you know, in general, 
but that's not a hundred percent. So, so, you know, whatever, he's not concerned with that. He's just like, you know, I mean, everybody, you know, for by and large, people think he's great. He's one of the most respected doctors. Like I saw this, uh, you know, YouTube podcast, um, you know, which had like these uh, three or four young men who really are, were totally demasculinized. Um, but they had him come on their podcast and they were just, I mean, starstruck, right? It was, it was as if it, if it were, you know, uh, a Hollywood, you know, A-list celebrity. Uh, which, you know, also is unwarranted, right? But, but for this guy who is really, you know, a psychopath responsible for the deaths of many, many people, um, you know, that's the spell uh, that people are under. I see. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, Sasha Stone calls it the dream spell. Um, what, what about a so-called virus like dengue fever? What would that, in your view, be more like a parasite or and something that could cause disease? Like, is there any sort of virus that could cause disease, like a really spicy one from a tropical place that your body's not used to? So, you know, here's the thing, Will, like by the kind of common sense way that you would actually like discover such a new organism like a virus, there's not one virus that's ever been discovered. So in other words, this has just been an idea that's never, ever been proven. They've just done some fake experiments that say it's proven. So there's really not one virus at all that causes disease. They, it's something that actually does not exist. So the diseases exist, right? There, there are cases of dengue fever, right? And I mean, they occur in Puerto Rico and other uh, tropical locations, right? So that is a real thing. Um, just like the flu is a real thing and colds are a real thing and pneumonia is a real thing, right? Um, but there, none of those real things have ever been, so not only have they not been shown to be caused by a virus, there's not ever even been a virus that's been shown. <laughs> so there's only the idea of a virus and then photographs of random particles that come from our own cells. But there's no virus that's ever been shown. So I don't know, I haven't researched specifically dengue fever, but for some of these other things, you know, there are pretty clear causes like polio um, is one that's really interesting, actually, because it is always held up as the most important example of the success of a vaccine. But all you have to do really is look at the timing of when cases of polio went away and when the Sabin vaccine, which was the second polio vaccine, that was the first one that was, was in wide use several years after it came out. So if you look at the number of vaccines that were actually given and compare that to the time when polio went away, you'd see that there were several years in between. So there's no possible way the vaccine could have caused that. Um, and then if you look back and do some, some real research, and I think uh, one of the people that's done the best job uh, with this, um, I just forgot his name, but I'll, I'll get back to that. Um, notes. Yeah. But the, uh, oh, the book is called um, The Moth and the Iron Lung. So Forrest Moretti, that's the author's name. 
And um, he did a really thorough analysis and you can see actually what caused poliomyelitis, that it was caused by insecticides that were initially targeted at killing the gypsy moth that were sprayed everywhere on the summer crops where the kids were picking and dousing themselves. And, and at first it was lead arsenate and they used that for many years and then they switched to DDT and then they stopped and it went away when they stopped. So it was a poisoning. Yes, I, and I'm, I'm behind that understanding of it 100%. I guess I was just wondering about these these experiences that my friends have where, you know, they're, they've lived in Canada their whole lives and then they're, oh, I want to have a spiritual experience like eat, pray, love. So I'm going to move to Bali and then they get, you know, sicker, sicker than ever. And, oh, it was dengue fever. And because I studied Germanic new medicine, Dr. Hammer always said viruses don't exist. And if they do, they serve a beneficial role in rebuilding tissue in the healing phase of certain programs. Well, I can actually explain what most likely happened. Okay. Um, so, and now, of course, this is not definitive. I would need to like get information from the individual person to, to determine this, but this totally makes sense to me um, that, it, that one factor, or, or this is the most likely thing that, you know, living in this modern Western culture, probably build up a lot of toxicity, but your body's managing it. Um, and by storing it, you know, in various places, like, you know, like in belly fat that where it won't hurt anything. And then you, you know, you go through this change where you're going to have a spiritual experience and clean yourself up in every way, right? You're going to eat different food. You'll probably lose weight. You'll be in the sun. You'll be doing meditation or whatever, right? In that place that you essentially, that'll be detoxifying, but you're, um, build, building up all this toxin for so long, you have a big cleansing reaction and it expresses it as an acute illness. I mean, because that's almost always what an acute illness is, is it's a detoxification or a cleansing reaction, right? This is what, when you have uh, uh, really bad periods or menopausal symptoms, you know, it's a pneumonia, it's a cold, it's pretty much all these acute situations are a cleansing or a detox reaction. And so it makes sense you would have it that way. Um, and then people who would have the same experience, they would actually have it together um, because they would communicate that sort of biological information to each other in some way. You know, just like uh, when we all go out in the sun together, we all get a sunburn, right? right. If we're not careful, <laughs> if we do yeah. it too much, you know? Yes, yeah. um, so, and that so, makes so, sense uh, in the context of GNM. Um, also, it would be the the psychological detoxification. Absolutely. Say you're having like a real. I remember I was having a real difficult time with a boss at a yoga studio who just was constantly criticizing me, and I just felt so horrible all the time around her. And she was really trying to to make my life a living hell, or that was my perception. Then I go to Mexico to get it. I'm getting away from that. You know, I've been subject to this abuse for a year over a year. And then I get sicker than a dog because according to GNM, I'm away from the stressor. Oh, I can finally go into healing. Yes, exactly. That's what you're doing is you're, you're starting the resolution. So you go into the active phase of the um, expression of the illness because the conflict is now in the res resolving process. And hopefully you complete that. But yeah, it is ironic that it occurs right when you arrive there. And then, of course, you say, oh, well, Mexico, you know, is unclean and 
<laughs> right? You blame it on Mexico and really it's the toxic, uh, you know, Canadian or North American lifestyle that you're, uh, that you're getting away from. And it's just purging into that beautiful, clean tropic paradise. But, but yeah, the, so the, the GNM way of looking at this, you know, totally, you could explain it and it could be related to that, you know, for an individual person that it's really the, it's the conflict shock that now is having, you're resolving it by leaving the area and doing something or having that different intention. So, it, you know, for any individual, it could be, you know, either one or both of those things happening simultaneously. Right. And, and I have heard some GNM teachers make the distinction that if you're brought up on a certain continent and you have this microbial milieu within you and around you, if you go to a completely different continent and then you're going into a healing phase of some sort of program, those microbes in that new continent will be used for the healing phase and if your body's not used to that milieu of microbes, it could be a spicy healing. I don't know what you have to say about that approach. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, maybe, or you could also just say that you'll be in different environmental conditions and have different foods mm -hmm. and that your terrain will be different uh, mm -hmm. in that environment. And that's why you'll express, you'll experience things differently. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, that actually the microorganisms evolve from inside of us and it depends on our, what our body needs and mm -hmm. not just dependent on what's in your geographic area. You might have different ones in different areas because the environment would want those species to deal with those particular conditions. And then you're in different conditions, you'll have different expression of those microbes. But if you look at like pleomorphism, and such, you, your body basically creates whichever. No problem. So yeah, you know, based on the environmental conditions, your body will bring about the right kind of response to uh, address that and including, you know, the individual species of microorganisms um, at the time. Thank you for that explanation. Um, and I, I always really, I've in my own personal experience, everything you say is true. And I honestly believe that the psyche is always the most powerful um, element of wellness and, 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 and being well. And if, if we think, oh my God, there's all these evil viruses out there that are going to kill you. Well, guess what? That becomes your reality. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, it, you can't separate the, I call it the psycho-spiritual, um, you know, components of health. Um, but, you know, they're always involved. And many times they could be the primary uh, underlying root cause uh, or conflict. Um, but, but, you know, and, and also, by the way, something that seems like a psychological manifestation of illness, you know, like anxiety, for example, that, that can also have a purely physical cause. It's like there's every different direction and combination of interaction between all the, the you know, the, the trinity of elements of our existence, right? Which in health, I look at as the, the body, the psyche, and the spirit, um, you know, similar to mind, body, uh, and soul, um, or soul, spirit, and body, right? So a lot of different ways to describe the Trinity, but, you know, we're all really talking about the same elements and they all interact 
um, you know, in all these health and, and illness uh, states. And if you can't ignore, you know, any of those aspects at any time, uh, or else you're, you're not going to achieve the full, uh, the right balance and, you know, a, a, a real true healing. Thank you. Um, what do you think of Dr. Zach Bush's distinction between viruses as he's, he's constantly saying viruses are viromic updates. So he thinks they're viromic updates uh, versus exosomes. Cause he says there are exosomes and then there are viromic updates. What do you have to say about that? Well, I have no idea what it is he's talking about. Um, you know, the, the only, I would have to just rely on, you know, what medicine says a virus is. They say that it's a particle coming from outside, not from, not from our own body, but from outside that invades and causes disease. And there's simply no proof that that exists at all. So talking about viruses beyond that is just confusing. Now, they also have tried to say that viruses exist using different research. And one of those is just looking at sequences of our own DNA or any organism's DNA and just picking out certain sequences of that and just calling them viral. <laughs> now, I know this sounds ridiculous, but let's see if I have this paper um, handy because this is literally what they're doing. And uh, they, um, they call it, okay, yeah, here's the article. So, See, can you see that? Is it is it uh, in in a mirror image? Yes. Or? So sorry. Redefining about that. So, the yes, it's re redefining the invertebrate RNA virosphere. So what that really what they're really saying is redefining invertebrate RNA as a virus, and that's exactly what they describe doing. So there, we have in our DNA, um, most of it is not made into proteins, it's not in genes. And they used to call this junk DNA, but now they call it non-coded RNA because they know that all this supposed DNA, junk DNA is actually made into RNA. And they say that RNA is, vi viruses have, are made of RNA, many of them. And so this, you know, non-coded RNA, they call it, it, it's responsible for really all the higher functioning. Uh, that makes us humans because we have like roughly the same number of genes as the um, nematode worm, right? But we are way, way more complicated. So it's, I believe, and many others believe it's because of this non-coding RNA that performs all these crazy functions and regulates really how all of our genes are expressed and does much, much more that we don't really understand yet. And so they're simply saying that these things are viruses because it perpetuates the whole virus dogma that they're, you know, that we're so filled with viruses that we need a million vaccines, otherwise we'll all be dead. But, you know, we would have all been dead already <laughs> if these things were real. But they're, they're just basically saying that our own genetic information is viruses. And I think Zach is trying to say that in such a way to make it be like we can call them viruses, but that they actually serve a positive role. 
And the reason they serve a positive role is because they're our own material. They come from our own body. There's no such thing as a virus. So you could just forget about that. Now we could talk about the role of, of uh, you know, these micro vesicles, right? Or that of which exosomes and many other types are, but really it's premature with the science. They don't really fully understand these things. So we would just be making a lot of hypotheses, um, you know, about what they do or, or you know, they, they contain some genetic information. So that's probably they're involved in some kind of communication. But, uh, but we don't really know, you know, the full extent. But I do believe it with Zach, um, you know, we do agree that all of these chemicals and toxins that are out in the environment are, that's what's killing us and making us unhealthy. And that's what we need to get rid of. And, you know, vaccines is just basically the, the same toxic poisons, except going in us by a needle. So, you know, yeah. instead of in our food, which is much more deadly through the needle. So, you know, we simply need to get rid of all these things completely um, out of our life, go back to, you know, natural farming practices. And, um, you know, like you pointed out earlier, get back to the basic elements. It should be quite simple to uh, live a healthy uh, and long life. Thank you. One more thing about Zach, and then I'll shut up about him. He just was, he had this three hour thing. Um, I sent it to you. I'm not sure if, if your people got it to you, but basically he, he was saying, you know, it's some sort of thing that came from Wuhan because of all the glyphosate and it's so talkous. So some new sort of, you know, virus, we know they don't exist, but a new virus came there. And, and so it, it actually helps things like arsenic get right into the cell. And so it's really an arsenic poisoning we're seeing. Um, you know, he had this whole thing. Yeah. So there, there's just simply no scientific evidence to support any of that. Um, you know, and if I'm wrong, uh, like if he mentioned uh, that or cited something, I'd be happy to take a look at it. But all those toxicity issues, you know, pre-existed and they didn't change in 2020 or 2019. They're the same as they always uh, have been. Yes. And I've watched your inter some of your interviews, for example, in London Real, where you show that the fact of the matter is there have not been any more deaths than normal in 2020, 21. Yeah, well, you know, it's really, really confusing to look at that because in one location, there were more deaths and in another location, there were less deaths. But certainly, you know, you don't need any statistics to know if people are dropping dead around you. We would have seen that if it were occurring. Um, in, you know, in the 1918 so-called Spanish flu pandemic, that, that's what everyone experienced. They, people had to, you know, help their neighbors bury the dead in their backyards because the cemeteries were full. Like everyone had to have their hand on a shovel to bury a dead body. You know, that's not, we, no one's experiencing that now. There's only, the only way you experience that now is by listening to them say it on the news. Yes. And what happened in 1918? Well, it, it, I think it was actually mostly due to experimental vaccines that were developed for the soldiers in World War I and killed many of them and then was distributed to the general population. I just um, bought this book and I think they say the same thing. And then yeah. in some particular areas, there were also new um, powerful um, technologies that affected people like satellite uh, and radar 
uh, sorry, not satellite, radar technology. So like people that live near this huge radar dish, you know, that the military put up had a lot of health consequences. So there was different things in different areas. It wasn't really one thing, but all these things were occurred over the same, you know, about one to two year period. Thank you. Um, we know that there's no virus. So what do you think these vaccines are actually doing? What do they expect to do? What is the intention? What does mRNA do and how does it alter our genes permanently? Yeah, well, you know, there aren't um, clear answers to all those questions, unfortunately, because it's an experimental technology that's never been deployed um, at all <laughs> before. Uh, it's only basically failed early clinical testing so that it was never approved. And what it is, is not a vaccine by any traditional sense. It is a technology platform that delivers a gene in our body to use our cells as a manufacturing facility for whatever is coded for in that gene, some foreign protein product. Uh, that's the intended function. Now they say that they'll that will actually make a, a part of the virus ourselves so that it'll make our body immune to it, but um, which is, is such a strange thing. But since there is no virus, there is no part of an imaginary or a non-existent thing that our cells could make. So we don't know what it's actually making. Um, like it could possibly make something called uh, beta HCG, which is the pregnancy hormone. Um, if it made that, then it would cause infertility. And there, cause there have been vaccines with that that have, have resulted in that. You can go look, uh, you know, there are several studies in the regular PubMed you can find on that. Um, but but the, the truth is we don't really know what, what it's gonna cause our cells to make. So that's the short term or the immediate effect. Then there is this, the question of, well, does it enter our genetic code that gets passed down to like the daughter cells? Like if, if it gets into uh, um, a muscle cell at the site of the injection, if that muscle cell divided into two cells, would they both contain that gene? And I don't think it's possible to know this 100% uh, with the mRNA, but there is certainly a mechanism by which that could occur, that it could be reverse transcribed into DNA that could stay in the nucleus. RNA can, by the way, pass into, the, into and out of the nucleus. So if it's mRNA, it could get into the nucleus. The DNA vaccine, like the Johnson & Johnson one, that would, would have to get into the nucleus to work. So that one would be passed down to the daughter cells. Um, so it would be in the genes. Now, the, the other thing is we don't know um, which cells this is going to actually get into because they inject it in one part of your body, but it could get into the blood and go to other parts. I think they found the nanoparticles that contain the genetic material in saliva. So that would mean they get from the injection site to the mouth. They could get anywhere in the body. If they got into um, like... The, the sperm cells, they could, you know, potentially be passed down to the next generation. Now, you know, th this could happen for a woman too, but they make all of the egg cells early on in their life. So you couldn't, you know, they're not, not like men that men are making sperm all the time. Uh, you know, women just make so many eggs and then just release them 
gradually over their period of fertility. But nonetheless, you know. Uh, we heard nonetheless, and then it cut out. I apologize if it's my Wi-Fi. I don't think it is. I don't know what's going on, but uh, we heard nonetheless. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm hardwired, but this this does this is the worst that I've had happen in a long time. Um, yeah, so we were talking about. Sorry, I lost. Remind me again what 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 I was saying. Um, we're talking about uh, none, nonetheless. Um, you you were talking about the the DNA vaccine being the Johnson and Johnson. The other ones are mRNA. I was going to ask you: Is the AstraZeneca more like a traditional vaccine? Um, I I don't even know about the AstraZeneca actually. I'd have to I'd have okay. to look into that. Sorry about that. I know okay. that it got you know. No no no. It was it was too toxic in the UK and they pulled it and then it hasn't been authorized in other places. So, uh, I mean, I think it has now, yes. but not in the US. Yeah, and many uh, European countries have uh, taken it off, uh, taken it off the shelves. Um, so, uh, yeah, similar so, question regarding. No, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say. I was going to say uh, similar. Similar question regarding HIV. We know there's no HIV virus. So, what do you think these HIV drugs are actually doing? What is the purpose of having all the gays on AIDS drugs, regardless of testing positive or negative? Because pretty much when I identified as gay, I realized I thought I was gay. Then I was like, oh, I'm actually just being poisoned by Monsanto. Uh, once I leached the glyphosate and the atrazine out of me, my whole psyche has shifted. And now I would say I'm more soul sexual. But when I was identifying as gay, almost all of my gay friends, whether they tested positive or negative, uh, are on AIDS drugs. Uh, so is it just the blind leading the blind or is it something more malicious? Well, you know, there's different aspects uh, to this. You know, there's like the, the, the business side of it, which is, you know, if you can get someone to take a drug for the rest of their life, that's the best business model because, you know, every single month you get more money from them, right? It's not like they're your customer temporarily, then they're fixed and then they move on. Um, so you, you want that condition from a business point of view, um, you know, the drugs keep you slightly unhealthy because, but they're not like, so, you know, the way that they got people sold on this is initially they had, you know, due to cultural elements and it was different in different areas. Like it was different in South Africa versus, you know, San Francisco, what happened, but in San Francisco it was essentially a confluence of lifestyle flat factors and some new pharmaceuticals that were used in conjunction with the lifestyle, like, like the amyl nitrate poppers and, and the, the pharmaceutical Bactrim, um, for example, and that led to this immune suppression. Um, and it was actually manifested the same illnesses as uh, kidney transplant recipients that were using the drug azathioprine, which was very similar to those other two drugs I mentioned. So it was kind of, you know, like too much partying, too much sex, too much drugs, not enough nutrition, and these toxic antibiotics and, and poppers basically brought about this condition in, you know, a, a small but noticeable number of people. And this created a real big scare. And 
initially what happened is that the drug company pulled this old failed chemotherapy drug off the shelf that was too poisonous to be used even as chemo for cancer and started these big clinical trials to treat, you know, this big scare, which after they said it was from a fake virus, because then they could use poison to kill the virus. And what that did was basically caused the people who are just sick to then get much, much worse and die. And then other people who just had a positive test to actually get AIDS. And so it became even more scary and people didn't know it was actually now it was the AZT that was really causing the majority of the problems. And, but all of the, you know, the gay community banded together and support each other. Like it was pretty amazing actually to watch the, the amount of advocacy, but unfortunately over time it turned into like part of the identity that it's like, if you weren't HIV positive, it's like you weren't in the, you know, in the club or something. Um, and that's why, you know, like you described, you'd have even people who are HIV negative taking these toxic drugs. So after all these people were dying and such, and there was basically a period of time where there was no, no cure and there were a, a lot of cases, then these new drugs came on the market, which are the same ones that they're using now. And as soon as these new ones came out, what they did is they massively lowered the dose of AZT and the other poison drugs and did away with some of them. And now added these newer drugs, which were just basically much less toxic. And so people got better because they were now not being poisoned <laughs> any longer. And that was the hook. So you had a test that basically had many, many, you know, totally meaningless, but gave you enough positives that enough people uh, could be diagnosed and then be given the drugs. And the drugs now were uh, mild enough that that they only cause enough enough toxicity to like know that you were taking something right and you think it was combating the virus but really it's just slowly killing you instead of killing you really quick and and it just kind of perpetuated with all of the um you know the messages and the coded messages the propaganda the reinforcement through sex education in school and charities and all that stuff you know, the condom culture. I mean, it changed the, uh, the way couples get together, this whole thing. You know, I mean, even, even I had this experience when I was younger that it's like, you'd have to get an HIV test before, uh, you know, your girlfriend would sleep with you without a condom, you know, and it's all was based on a lie. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Instead, you're taking like some plastic and rubbing it inside your genitals. That's not good, you know? It's so sad. Uh, Kelly Brogan and Tom Barnett have broached the possibility of the theory that uh, gay men who died in the 80s were killed off by some sort of bioweapon put in the hepatitis B vaccine. What do you think about that being a, uh, some sort of agent of, of all the deaths? Kelly Brogan also suggests that that may not be true. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't have any evidence for that either, uh, but the hepatitis B vaccine is already a weapon. Um, I mean, it's caused a lot of the, all, the sudden infant death problems are related to that drug. Like there's apps, they want you to give that vaccine on the day of birth. And I'll tell you, like I've seen thousands and thousands of medical patients. I never saw one patient sick from hepatitis B, not once in my career. 
I've seen people with liver failure for many reasons, but never from that. And why, why is it so important, you know, to give uh, an infant on the day of birth when they don't even have their own, an immune system, a drug like that. So it, it's, it is basically poison. So did they make it with worse poison in that community? Uh, quite possibly, but in, it's a little bit confusing calling it a bioweapon because that makes you assume or think that it could be like a virus that could pass from person to person, but there just, there is no such thing. So it's essentially just a poison injection. Um, and it could be made with biological materials because, you know, when, when biological organisms, you know, they create waste products and those waste products are poisonous. And a lot of illness is actually related to that, you know, like cholera happens when a certain bacteria um, eat sewage in the water. And then they, they secrete waste products that are poisonous, which is the disease cholera. Um, so, you know, food poisoning, we know about all these kind of things. So it's, it's important to just realize that's what we're talking about. And that's why they would have to inject it because that's the way that you, it bypasses the protection system of, of the gut, right? Putting it in hydrochloric acid in your stomach that neutralizes a lot of things. Um, and, you know, when you inject something, you bypass those protective mechanisms and 100% of the poison gets in the body. And that's why, you know, if there are any so-called bio warfare weapons, they would basically be vaccines. Thank you. So it's basically if they were putting biological agents in the vaccines, it's basically them shitting that would cause illness in, in humans. Yeah, well, this is what, this is how they made traditional vaccines. They take a sick person's, you know, snot, which is basically the rotting tissue of the disease that you're getting rid of, right? They'd add that to a cell culture. And so you said this, they yeah. take the snot uh, and then they'd add it to a cell culture. Yeah, so this is how they manufacture vaccines. They, they take like the, you know, the, the secretion, like the snot from a sick person with that illness they're making the vaccine for. And that, you know, just has all the stuff your body's getting rid of, the decaying tissue. They put that in a cell culture and add a few more poisons to the cells like antibiotics and calf serum. And they starve that. And then they wait for those cells to start dying. And so they're putting off all kinds of poisonous stuff because they're dying. Then they just filter that to get rid of the debris and that liquid, they mix it with additional poisonous things like aluminum hydroxide and uh, you know uh, polysorbate 80 and uh, some other various other chemicals and, and maybe some, some uh, DNA from aborted fetuses. And then that's the vaccine. <laughs> it's so crazy. It's so crazy. You know, people have said elderly gay men, well, I've lost so many people and how dare you say there's no virus. It's the virus. And it's so ingrained in that community. And, and I just say, well, geez, like we are what we eat, what we drink, what we think. So it's many, it can never just be one cause. So it's like, you know, not only were these gay men taking things like Bactrim and, you know, thinking that they weren't going to get STDs, literally just filling themselves full of these, um, 
these gut depleting, you know, good bacteria depleting uh, chemicals, uh, there's also the thoughts, there's also these, these um, really, really difficult thought forms, being a gay person, like identifying with that, especially in the 80s, you immediately are vilified and scapegoated by the dominator culture. That is a huge poison in and of itself to be taking on that. No, and I think, you know, some of the extreme behavior that you saw during that era was a a rebellion to that, you know, lack of acceptance that you have to go, you know, into this marginalized space and then, you know, and then, you know, act out to the fullest extent to sort of, you know, make up for having to keep everything, you know, hidden or face, you know, it's just like how we're, you know, now we're sort of ostracized for going out without a mask, right? All the time, everyone's trying, you know, shame looking at us, you know, with anger and all this kind of stuff. It makes it really difficult. Um, You know, it makes me want to just, you know, go skinny dipping with 500 people, (laughs) you know, which I totally (laughs) do, right? But it's like, you know, I want to overcompensate now. Um, you know, so yes. yeah, that, that, that cultural, those cultural elements really, you know, helped uh, drive things It interacted with all the other aspects. And, you know, it, it's important to note the contribution of the mental anguish, uh, you know, that was going on because it, it definitely, you know, played the part. And, you know, even if you look at what happened in a totally different part of the world with different circumstances where it, it wasn't affecting homosexuals, like it was affecting uh, poor minors in South Africa. Um, And they were basically Mm -hmm. saying that, you know, they had TB, which really was lung disease from inhaling the mining dust and mixed with malnutrition, they were calling it AIDS there. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, and it was uh, basically they were exploiting the people um, as a result of that. And then the uh, companies that employed the miners then had no liability, right? Because, right. oh, it's a horrible infection, and, you know, and then they said it was because of the prostitutes that would travel, you know, uh, along the trade routes in Africa, and they blamed it on that, right, oh as God. a scapegoat instead of, you know, the big mining companies. Yes. And I'll speak from my own experience. You know, when I was living in New York, 18 years old, I had a boyfriend uh, holding hands with him in in, uh, Hell's Kitchen and literally having somebody chase us up the street, calling us faggots and other things just for holding hands. I was constantly getting sick. I was constantly in depression. I was constantly getting tonsillitis. I was constantly having diarrhea. I was constantly experiencing many different symptoms that maybe the dominator system would call AIDS, right? They certainly would because, right. uh, you know, I mean, the, almost anything qualified you for that diagnosis. So, yeah. And even in Africa, there's something called the Bangui definition where the, the physician, usually a white guy will look at the African and go, okay, they've got thrush. They've lost some weight. Okay. They've got AIDS. And then their village will ostracize that person because they've got a demon in them and then they'll die. You know, and there's many cultures where they point the bone. Somebody's committed a crime, you're dead to us. And then they die. Like people, the Western psyche, we forget the power of the psyche in, in wellness and in dis-ease. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, your movie, yeah, so bottom line is we have to address the terrain before we go fighting anything. <laughs> um, your movie, Hippo- Hippocratic Hypocrisy, Hippocratic Hypocrisy is amazing. Um, I love how you reveal how Carnegie and Rockefeller co-opted the medical system 
So thank you for making that movie. <laughs> My pleasure there, you know, um, you know, it's, there's other important works on that out there, but you know, it's still so uh, seldomly um, understood or known, you know, by people um, that it's important to really, you know, learn about that as much as possible and see how this whole system came about and know that it's not really based upon true health and true scientific uh, discovery. Thank you. Um, what are the benefits of shilajit? Uh, well, uh, shilajit is an amazing substance because it is, uh, you know, this something... is the last question, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Yeah. Um, shilajit, you know, is, is kind of amazing because it's something that nature uh, created and really it seems like for the health of the animals uh, in nature. And, you know, what it is, is thought to be an ancient decomposed forest from millions of years ago that was kind of covered and under a mountain and under that pressure got reduced into this rich mineral substance. And it leaks out through cracks in the rocks. And um, traditionally it's been found in the Himalayas and up in the Caucasus mountains in Russia where they have a different name for it, Mumio. Mm. And um, it's been known to have healing properties, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine for uh, thousands of years. Um, it's hard to find a good quality product from over there these days because there's just a lot of corrupt business people <laughs> involved. Like when I was trying to um, find a source of it, you know, nobody would give me even a report on like, you know, what's in it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they just wanted to know how much will you buy? And I was a bit suspicious. So when I saw or found out that there's one person who found this in the Rocky Mountains in Utah and were harvesting it and partnering with an amazing spagyric uh, chemist to purify it, um, I thought this is the right product. And so it's, uh, we would call it Rocky Mountain Mumio, uh, since it's domestic. And it has um, over 50 trace minerals and it has extremely low levels of any of the um, toxic heavy metals like mercury or arsenic. Um, but it really is not a dangerous uh, source of those anyway, because what it does is it, it really just supplies the minerals that your body wants, because those are the ones energetically favorable to offload into your enzymes. And here's the main amazing benefit. When those binding sites are freed up, then it sucks up the heavy metals that are in your tissues that your body doesn't, it's like substituting, it'll hold on to because it doesn't know what to do with. But when that fulvic acid in the shilajit comes, it will take those away. And, you know, they found these deposits in a really cool way because after it rains, the um, rainwater drips down and dissolves some of this material and animals go and find it and lick these just like they would find like a mineral deposit in a cave or a salt lick. And uh, because they know the health benefits. So we follow the animals and then find a source and are very, very careful not to harvest too much because we want to make sure the animals can continue to benefit as well. Amazing. Well, I'm excited to get my hands on some. How can people purchase it? Yeah, well, if you just um, go to my website, uh, andrewkaufmanmd.com, 
um, then you'll be able to see uh, more about it um, and uh, order the product. It's available in uh, different, uh, you know, formulations and uh, we ship it all over the world. Um, and, uh, you know, people have reported some amazing results. When I uh, was taking this after a few months, actually, and this might be relevant to what we talked about before, I noticed the, a certain improvement in my uh, sexual vitality, if you know what I mean. I, uh, the ability to maintain an erection was something more like I was akin to in my youth. Um, it cut, it's right. funny, it cut out right after you said uh, ability to maintain an erection was more akin to how it was in my youth. <laughs> so that's a really good button. I apologize for all the, the, um, okay. the technical problems. It's never happened on my end uh, before, but I pressed pause every time it did. So I think it'll all be relatively seamless. Um, yeah, so I'm excited to get my hands on some of your Shilajit. And uh, thank you so much for your time. This has been really enlightening to speak with you. Well, that's been great, Will. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, bro. Thanks again to Dr. Kaufman for being on the show. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Head over to Andrew Kaufman's website and learn more. The link is in the show notes below. And yeah, let's keep digging. Let's keep doing our research and let's keep connecting in community because we know that everything from the way our skin looks to the way our digestion's going to... Everything, every function in our body is affected by whether or not we feel like we belong to a tribe. So let's keep cultivating community. Namaste, friends. I just want to take the time